Um, that was great. That was good. Yeah, you went, you went, you went deep, brother. That's the point, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I can roll. I know, it. man, dude. I was like, I was closing my eyes and just like, yeah, preach. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I study all the time, so this is right up my alley, man. I don't have the opportunity to talk about this stuff because yeah. most people don't want to go that deep. kid growing up in the 90s, I idolized the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan. I love basketball more than anything else, and I spend my summer days at the Jewish Community Center working on every part of my game. I was a pretty decent shooter, but that's where it ended. And the other kids on the teams that I played with were much better than I was physically. They could dribble the ball, cross over their opponents, and do things that I was not very natural at. And after a while, I decided to give up basketball and switch to something I was much better at, tennis, a game that I was more physically, mentally, and intuitively suited for. And who knows, had I had George Mumford as my meditation mindfulness coach back then, maybe I would have made it to the NBA. George would have probably taught me that my limits were all in my mind and not in my body. He would have helped me to perform under pressure and devote my time to the right practice, a concept that he talks about in his book, The Mindful Athlete. George would have given me the same advice he gave to Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, and countless other legends he's worked with over his long career. George's road to becoming an influential author and mindfulness coach to the elite of pro sports was filled with peril. He grew up in Boston in the 60s during a time of massive racial tension. He had to be constantly aware and on his toes. In college, he roomed with Dr. J, future NBA legend. And George was hoping for a similar destiny until his athletic career was cut short by severe injuries. He would develop addictions to painkillers and later heroin to deal with his physical and emotional pain. And after college, he found himself leading a double life. He was a smart and successful financial analyst with a dope habit. He soon hit rock bottom, but it was through AA and the discovery of mindfulness meditation that George would turn it all around. He spent years reading, studying, and practicing meditation with some of the most skilled and renowned teachers. He would go on to work with John Kabat-Zinn, a pioneer in mindfulness-based stress reduction. And it was through a clandestine encounter with Phil Jackson, then coach of the Chicago Bulls, that George would bring his life full circle. I had a chance to sit down with George a few minutes prior to a sold-out talk in Toronto, where he was invited by Lululemon to speak about mindfulness, performance, and a lifetime of work. Get you to sing a little song, George. Anything in the key of C? In the key of C. Hmm. <laughs> I know you sing. One nation under a groove. <laughs> Getting down for the funk of it. Oh, One okay. nation and we're on the move. Nothing can stop us now. <laughs> you have not known the power of the dark side. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Is that going to be part of the act tonight? No, not no. tonight. Not tonight. You're your own opening. Well, act. I have no idea what's going to be part of the act. Maybe. Who knows? So you just kind of you you go in and and you know you're already in a bit of a flow state, right? Yeah, I just go in and just let things happen. Mm. Um, 
so you know we were um, we were on the basketball court earlier today taping for Vice uh, a little segment that that'll come out uh, probably around the time this comes out where we uh, uh, I guess we, we uh, got some tips on how to meditate like uh, Kobe and Mike yeah and um, you know and 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 that was cool that was like the little uh, I think sampler so I was really excited to sit here with you in this um, Hollywood style dressing room mm-hmm. in the Lower Ossington Theater. We're surrounded by costumes and wigs. <laughs> so I might put on a couple of those later. But um, I was really excited to actually delve a little deeper. Yes. Because um, I, I think everything you do is at such a, a deep level. And, um, you know, to, to, really, to really get the flavor and sink your teeth in it, I think it takes a little bit of time, right? Yes. So. So why are you in Toronto, George? It's your first time in Toronto, right? Yes. I'm in Toronto because I get invited to come here and, and hang out with Lululemon to speak, <laughs> give a presentation on mindfulness and performance. So that's pretty much it. That's it. What do you think of Toronto so far? I love it. I, I like the way it feels. Mm. I've been hearing good things about it and I have family, uh, not family, but friends. A lot of student athletes that I've worked with in in the states that were basketball players, uh, volleyball players, soccer players, and field hockey players. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as well as uh, my godson's grandmother lives here. Right. You have a chance to uh, to see any of those? People? No, no, no. I came <laughs> here from Atlanta and just doing what's in front of me. So I haven't had time. So, how often uh, are you on the road? Is it constant? No, it varies. This mm-hmm. year, I had some medical uh, procedures done, so I've been I've been home more than usual. Mm. But yeah, it wouldn't be unusual for me to, to travel once a year. But because I'm not working with the New York Knicks this year, I'm not traveling back and forth to New York a lot. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. but I have this month. I'm pretty much on the road just about the whole month. Mm-hmm. That's very rare, but after that, I'm not sure. There might be a few trips, but it'll probably slow down. Mm-hmm. So I think everyone here has felt the, uh, um, you know, the grueling grind of traveling. So as a professional traveler, how do you deal with that from a mindfulness perspective? From a mindfulness perspective, I try to go first class, <laughs> business class, uh, JetBlue, or yeah, not Blue United America. though. No, <laughs> United. I've 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 flown them before, but it's. It's really more about going to to those carriers that have the extra leg room and mm. and make it comfortable for you and they're friendly. So the friendly skies of United probably after that one incident I wouldn't discount <laughs> them, but they're gonna have to do something to make up for that one. Yeah, I mean it's funny we're gonna talk about you know, how we all make decisions and, and uh, sometimes we act out of fear or uh, we act f- maybe from our limbic system or, or some other place. But, you know, you look at that and you look at the amount of people who are involved in, in that act. And I mean, how did no one realize that was going to be a bad thing? You know, where was mindfulness then, I wonder? Well, it might have been they want they were mindful of getting them out of there, but it wasn't <laughs> right, right mindfulness. It wasn't mindfulness that actually reflected and thought about the good doctor as a person mm-hmm. and just how forceful, because the thing about 
using force is that you have to keep using force. If mm-hmm. you use power, if you use pers- persuasion, if there's a way of just thinking and saying, okay, how do we, how do we get people on the plane to give up their seats so that we can make room for these folks? And so what happens sometimes, just from my own experience, is because there's, there's a quick decision and it's you use force to make it because you don't think you have enough time. You don't think about, you might even, who knows what they were thinking. They might have mm-hmm. been thinking that they didn't want to offer anything. They just wanted somebody to volunteer. And then they just, I don't know, maybe they gave him the short end of the straw and, straw and said, is this guy. And it being a doctor, it's very interesting that they would select a doctor. My suspicion is that they didn't select it, just picked a person and said this. I think is, it was random. It was random. And unfortunately, uh, is what they call penny wise, pound foolish. <laughs> so I think that's what happened. Um, but I don't know. I'm, I'm just yeah. speculating. But I think in hindsight, it's a lot cheaper to just offer somebody maybe a free first class ticket or something if they needed mm-hmm. to seat that badly. That in hindsight, I'm pretty sure they could have offered someone, and there would have been someone on that plane that would have said, "Okay, you can have my seat." And you've talked about that before, where you know you feel that there's too much suffering in the world, needless suffering, right? And um, you know, it kind of brings me back to something I read about you, which is your your purpose, which uh, I've read is to um, release the divine spark in every human being, and and I guess that would, you know, theoretically. Uh, prevent people from doing such a thing in their right. daily lives, right? Yes, if, if, if you can get beyond the illusion of separateness and you could think about being in the other person's shoes, we've, we've heard this before, mm-hmm. and think about, okay, so if I'm that doctor and I'm on a plane and I have to get back because there's patients that are, that are relying on me and I have to get back, then how would I feel if somebody just randomly came and said you have to give up your seat and you know you're not leaving, getting on that plane, someone's gonna suffer, or there's gonna be some consequences to that. Hmm. And you try to have a conversation with someone, uh, but they're not listening and they made a decision and against your will, because you paid for the seat, they're just removing you. It's not like you said something to upset the pilot or you got yourself removed because you did some act. This is a person, mm-hmm basically minding their own business. So if you started thinking about that and say, okay, what if that was my dad? What if that was my brother? Or what if that was mm-hmm. me? How would I feel? Someone came, it just forcibly removed me from my seat when I didn't commit anything or do anything that warranted that. Mm-hmm. So you have to open up your heart, you have to empathize. Mm. I mean, th- this is uh, kind of a metaphor for what we're gonna talk about, which is, uh, it seems when, when, when people saw that event, they, they really looked at it as um, human beings who did something to another human being which was absolutely unhuman because right. they were following protocol. They were following right. some conditioning uh, or, or policy. And I think we all do this, right? We, we all kind of follow uh, the lead of our past and what we're supposed to do, but right. we don't actually act in the moment of what is right. And sometimes we don't realize that. And I think that's, that's, right. that's, that's, that's kind of what's, what's happening a lot in our world right now. Yes, you talked about the limbic brain a little Mm -hmm. while ago. So we have three brains. We have the reptilian brain, we have the limbic brain or the middle brain, and then we have the cerebral cortex Mm -hmm. or the thinking brain. So it's obvious to me that they perceived it in a way where they were acting on their animal instincts. Mm -hmm. And it's fight or flight or freeze. And in their case, they had the power. They just use force. 
And when you do that, that's like it's to them, they might have been perceiving it as life or death or this was really a, a urgent matter that had to be taken care of. Mm-hmm. When in actuality, that was a perception that wasn't the only way to perceive that. Mm-hmm. But if you perceive things in a way, then your reptilian brain gets in there and so there's no, so you get emotionally hijacked. So, you know, whatever it is goes right to the middle brain of the amygdala and then this, you're in this fight mm-hmm. or flight. Mm-hmm. Uh, pattern rather than having the, the thinking brain be involved where you're able to create space and think about well what am I doing and what are the mm-hmm. consequences and is this the best way to do what I mm-hmm. want to achieve and so so when the when we get when we're operating on the animal level or the reptilian brain there's no seeing the other person as a human being mm-hmm. we, we get away from our humanity you might say and so I didn't realize that the guy lost a couple of teeth and broken nose and other mm-hmm. other things, but he's gonna have to have plastic surgery. Right. So obviously they didn't use some force, they used a lot of force. It reminds me of uh, a quote that you use in your book, The Mindful Athlete. Um, and you're, you bring up Viktor Frankl a lot, I'll have you describe in a sec, but the quote is, um, between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space, our power to choose our response. And our response lies our growth and our freedom. That's right. And I think that's kind of what you're describing is the gap between the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex. And having that space and really asking yourself or living to your values. Mm -hmm. And that is, we're human human beings and we don't treat anyone like that. There's no justification for removing someone from the plane like that. And especially if the person was not a threat. And even if he was a threat, you still have to have to consider what impact that's going to have on the other other passengers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and what's what's interesting is they really, uh, you know, they didn't own up to it. It took them about it took the CEO I think three separate occasions to really admit that they had made a mistake. They'd even uh, covered up the fact that uh, or lied about the fact that that passenger uh, was calm the whole time. They had tried to exaggerate you know, mm-hmm. his his state of mind, his right. agitation, but that wasn't the case. Right. Right. It's pretty interesting. Why Why is Viktor Frankl, maybe can you, uh, you know, talk about him a little bit? He, you bring him up a lot. I'm just curious, why does Viktor Frankl resonate with you? Because he's, he was, um, he was a psychiatrist that also was in the, in that philosophy of existentialist, in other words, mm-hmm. really dealing with with uh, life concerns like death and freedom and meaninglessness and isolation mm-hmm. and or feeling alone and powerless. And he was in a concentration camp, so he had to create space being in a really, didn't have, not having liberty, but having freedom in terms of his mind, in terms of choosing his re, his attitude no matter what happened. So he didn't only write about it, talk about it, but he experienced it. He lived it. He lived it. And so if you can have freedom in one of the most atrocious situations, you can have freedom anywhere. Mm -hmm. And so it's like Nietzsche, he who has a why can tolerate any how. So that's, it's just profound. He was profound and he was and he developed he a lot of sympathy for his captors, for the soldiers yes. who were just doing their job. That's right. Is what he said. That's right. So that that's getting beyond that 
that illusion of separateness and mm -hmm. real, realizing even in this situation that the people that imposed their will on this doctor, this passenger, that they have to be, we have to have compassion for them mm -hmm. as well. Because I'm, I'm sure they, they perceived it in a way, and I'm sure if they had it to do over again, they would not want to do that. No. They wouldn't do it that way. And I and you mentioned the fact that it took the CEO three days. Well, I can give you 250 reasons, 50 million reasons why it took three days. Because when the stock plunged, you know, money talks. Right. So I'm just assuming that that had something to do with it because he knew if he didn't say something, it was going to have more of a consequence. But maybe... I'm just speculating. Maybe he was planning on thinking. It just took him three days to figure out how he could say it in the, in the most effective way. But my suspicion is that when we procrastinate, when we don't do things immediately, it's because it's it's difficult. Mm -hmm. And who knows? He might have felt a lot of uh, sadness about it. Or I don't know. I won't judge him. I don't know his mind. No, but you're big on courage. Yes. So you have to do the right thing. Right. You have to do no matter what. You have to say that's not okay. And let's look at how it happened and let's make sure it doesn't happen again. And let's make sure we take care of that man, the doctor. Um, and, and, you know, we're, t we're talking about a larger entity, which is a corporation, which in, in some ways functions as an organism and it has core values. Um, I, I was interested to learn how you, uh, in your work with the Golden State Warriors. And I did not work with them, but I know I'm sorry. Them. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, I know the coach. <laughs> we know the coach. I worked with the coach in the past. Kerr, right? Yes. Because he was, he was on those Bulls teams that he you was worked on the, with. on the 96 Bulls team that won 72 games. That's right. Yes. And, uh, and when you came on, they, they went on to win three more titles. Right. That's right. correct. Um, so, but, uh, you know, you, you were talking about their core values, which I found very interesting. Right. Because mindfulness was, was part of it, but there were yes. a few others too. Yes. Well, you have to was important to understand that mindfulness is helpful and a lot of us use mindfulness even if we don't call it that or the right mindfulness just to the degree that we can be locked into the present and we can the immediacy of experience is really mm -hmm. important how we relate to that and when you're mindful like if I say be mindful of the time be mindful of your manners be mindful of your, your words or your thoughts be mindful of, of of being able to listen to what the other person is saying uh, wholeheartedly and being vulnerable to the point where you just let in what is being said. So mindfulness is really important and for him because he had the experience, he won three championships with the Bulls and he's been exposed to it, he, he understands the value of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And what are the, what are the uh, Warriors' core values? Well, the first one is joy. Mm -hmm. The second one is mindfulness. The third one is compassion. And the fourth one is competition. Right. The fourth one fourth is one. competition. Competition. So, so really, um, you know, as the values kind of in order are about being good people and then, I guess, good athletes. Not to losing your humanity. Right. Yes. And, and, and using your whole brain. Mm. You know, what's interesting is when Durant uh, went to the Warriors, I think everybody brought up the, uh, you know, the idea that there's not enough ball for everybody. Right, it's just there's not enough touches for everybody. But w when I hear you talk about this, I, I, you know, I realize well maybe that was the only team he could have gone to because they weren't necessarily uh, about you know like selfishness is not part of their, their right. core values. They're really about right. uh, winning as a team, strength in numbers, all that stuff. Is is that something you would, I guess, uh, agree or disagree with? Yes. Well, 
I, I tried to follow up on why he chose to leave, and, and I think the main reason he left was because he wanted to play in an offense that was more balanced and mm-hmm. didn't rely so much on, on him or two people, but that you had five people involved. And I think that we perceive him as maybe being somebody who wants to wants to be the main attraction, and it seems to me that he he wants to play on a team and he wants to play in a system where you play basketball a certain way. And this play movement, ball movement, this sharing and carrying, and and we discovered that he's quite a defender. So that on some level, it when you take off when you take the offensive pressure off of him, and he's playing in a system like that system, he can he can express more of his abilities. Mm-hmm. And you know, and then he can decide when when to take over, when to assert himself, and so he'll have to play with when to do that, when not to. But I think that he made the move, even though people are upset. Because you know they say, well, they just beat you. Why would you go to them? Well, I remember, if you can't beat them, join them. Yeah. <laughs> but the other part is maybe it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with going to a place where you could be who you who you want to be, or you can express yourself more freely. Mm-hmm. And my suspicion is that's that's probably why he did it because he had an inkling that he could play there and he could be himself and he could be, yeah, he he could express himself uh, more wholesomely, maybe or. Mm-hmm. or, or or more completely. Right. That's very admirable. I mean, again, when uh, your perception of athletes is that they're they're largely selfish, right? No, that's not, not, your, my, not, not, not your perception. That's I'm perception. saying perception. In, yeah. in, in general, that's the perception. Right. But um, I think it's it's refreshing to know that that's not always the case. I mean, they're looking for more than, than just money. I mean, obviously money is, is, yeah, is well, it crucial. Also, it also depends on what we value. So if we value people who score points and rebounds and, and fill the space the spreadsheet, then we're tacitly saying, okay, if you do this, we're gonna pay you. Right. So we have to look at how we value folks. When you ask, well, at least when I ask somebody, ask them how they played, they talk about stats instead of saying um, other things like, you know, I, I, I got better today, I helped my teammates more, so it doesn't show up in the stat sheet that I set screens and I and I moved uh, made my basket cuts and rebound um, curl cuts whatever it is mm-hmm. and and I occupied the defense so that my teammate could get an open shot or I set a screen and then rolled and got an open shot so we don't really talk about those little intangible things that don't show up on the stat sheet but that's what great players do they make other people around them better mm-hmm. well uh, there's a lot of people say that, uh, and, and maybe Jordan himself, that he became a better leader uh, because of the mindfulness work he did right. with you. That's right. And, and how did he become a better leader? He was already quite successful when you had yes. started well, working with him. I think if you would have talked to him, he would probably say something to the effect that the guys he played with when he won the first three championships were very different than the guys he won with the, the last three. And, and people are changing. Change is constant. So players change, how you talk to each other, what they can handle changes. So you have to change with change. And so if you're doing things the way that you were doing them in 1993 and 1996, you might discover that it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. And you might discover that, that you have to adapt to what is, not what used to, what used to be, but what is right now. So 
that that's the illusion that things are not changing. When things change, we have to change if we want to want to continue to evolve, continue to be successful. We have to adapt to the current reality. Well, when you came in to work with the Bulls, uh, Phil Jackson brought you in. Uh, you were dealing, uh, I think I've heard you say or write about, with their struggles of success. Yes, he, he wanted me to come in because of the stress of success, and you could see it when you become successful, then people want more of your time, you get more endorsements, and you have more distractions to the degree that you may not be working as hard as you were working before or having the time and the energy to work hard. And in actual fact, after winning three championships, you gotta work even harder to sustain it because everybody else is working harder mm. trying to catch up or right. They're chasing you. you. They're chasing you. Right. So you have a target on your back or your chest and you have to act accordingly. You have to, you, you can re respond to it in a way where you say, oh, this is an opportunity for me to go to the next level. Mm. Rather than saying, okay, I, I'm gonna be, I reached it. It's just like if you have this illusion that, okay, I graduate from college, I'm done with learning. Well, you're gonna be left behind. And the next level for Jordan was becoming a more complete teammate. Was that it? Well, it's what the situation called for. Being a leader, if you needed more leadership, if you needed to en encourage, uh, enhance, make the people around you better, then then you have to get out of your own comfort zone and do things that maybe you're not accustomed to doing. So you have to keep evolving, keep learning more skill sets, keep learning more leadership uh, styles or different mm -hmm. ways of relating to different people so that you can actually uh, communicate to them and you can have conversations with them that lead to actions. And how did you use mindfulness to, uh, to, to make that point? Well, the thing about mindfulness is this uh, ability to be with what is, because if you think about things, as you approach things, this is what we all do. When we approach things, we expect certain things to happen. And that expectation actually creates that or prevents us from seeing what's actually there. So if you use the experiment, if you approach something, and even if, even with you and I talking, you may have expectations of what is gonna happen, but if you compare what you expected versus what actually happened, you mm -hmm. will see that it's different. And that we can do that on any domain. You keep looking at things and you, and you compare what you expect versus what you actually get, and you can see there's movement, there's, there's a change, you learn something, because now you're seeing things in a fresh way rather than seeing things based on the past. So mindfulness is all about here and now, and seeing things as they are here and now. So you might consider thinking about it in a way where you're not imposing it or interpreting what's happening. You're letting what's happening speak to you or speak, and speak in its own language so that there's a vulnerability there, but there's an excitement there because you're actually learning new things so you can encounter the things that you've encountered before, but they're, you're encountering you're encountering them in new and fresh ways. Mm. So the creativity is really alive when we can do that, when we can actually say, well, I don't know what's gonna happen, why don't I see what happens? And in that seeing, there's there's a knowing of what to do as we, we can see the differentiation between what we thought versus what actually happened. Mm. As opposed to uh, reliving, reenacting, rethinking what Yes, that's done. what we do because it's convenient, but this is how our nervous system sets up because we couldn't be in a moment if we didn't anticipate 
what was going to happen. I think that's what's so useful about neuroscience um, and how uh, now we have the tools to measure the phenomenon that I think traditional meditators and cultures have known for a long time. Right. But I mean, just the deviation of the brain and knowing when you're limbic, uh, when you're kind of, you know, auto mode autopilot, right. versus actually looking at the raw data of a of a situation, the That's raw right. sensations. That's right. And so you're talking about this mechanical way of, of perception mm-hmm. or perceiving. And so if you can see and get out of the mechanical way and just be in the fresh and live way, so that 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 requires because what that does is puts us in a position where we may have some things or ways that we think things are that we identify with. And so now if we see things differently, now we're going to have some existential guilt because we we were doing something that wasn't that doesn't work anymore and were we were we um quote living in fantasy before? No, that was then. This is now. But we have this need to make things that are impermanent permanent. I think so much of, I mean, our, our, our brains are really very new, right? Right. I mean, the prefrontal cortex, which we talked about earlier is a new brain. And, uh, I I find so much of what, uh, it is to be a human nowadays is to deal with our, uh, you know, our limbic inheritance, our, our genetic inheritance as, you know, essentially hunter gatherers who are really, uh, wired to be together in in tribes. Um, and we have this amygdala, right? Another part of our brain that, uh, is, is kind of no longer uh, engaged by fight or flight type things, you know, lions right. chasing you. So now we have to find all these new fears and it's really an interesting, that's why I think the field of mindfulness is so crucial right now because we have to essentially, uh, we need the instructions for our brains. Yes, yes, we need the instructions for how the brain, how the mind and knowing the difference between the brain and the mind, but also understanding that- The difference I, between the brain and the mind. Yeah, I was just reading something uh-huh. or saw something where we have two brains. Okay. At least two brains, but some of the cells actually have um, learning capacity. But the belly or the stomach—that's uh, where our first brain was before we started eating meat and walking upright. That's what we say from the gut. Yes, so you have a gut feel. So there's microcosms and there's other things in there that really matter. And so when people get stressed out, they get upset stomach yeah. or whatever. So that we have two brains. So you you have have you have, you can get a gut feel. So. Some of the same chemicals, some of the same um, sort sort of chemical messages and electromagnetic messages, they're in the stomach, they're right. in the belly. Well, serotonin, well. serotonin is produced that's in the right. stomach, right? Absolutely. So we're learning more and more, but there's intelligence throughout the body, not just in the in the brain or not, or in the belly. No, the body's a brain. Yeah. Well, the body, the mind, is beyond. Mm. It's, it includes, but it's beyond the body so if you think about it that way then because you know things so what why is it that when we are in a car and we drive under an underpass we duck right so they have this idea that we have this peripersonal space that goes around us and that that the proprioception system Mm. can expand out that's why when you do martial arts you become the sword becomes an extension of you the stick the staff, the fan, whatever the object is, becomes part of you. So our peripersonal space can go out. And even with me moving my hands, there's there's a virtual map in there that actually guides how far I move my hand, the fact that I could pick up something with a fork or a spoon. And so there's this virtual reality inside 
they are somewhere that is directing things, where we direct, we, we gauge, we, we think about things. So that's why when somebody gets in your personal space, you feel threatened sometimes, or you know, depending on who it is, you, know, you allow them or you don't allow them. So you think about that, 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 that there's so much we don't know about this mind-body process that with, with the neuroscience and with all of the instruments, we're, we're able to measure them now but they've been there for millennia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I kind of look at it as uh, information, like we have information floating around here through radio waves and uh, you know Wi-Fi, but we're not tuned to it, right? But as soon as you have the instrument to tune yourself to it, then you can perceive it. Yeah, well that's why we talk about be still and know, and then you have access to the, what, what Jung called the, the, um, the collective unconscious. Yeah, collective unconscious. Uh, and some people call it, Dr. Hawkins called it the database of consciousness. Right. So we are all connected to a worldwide web, you might say, where the information over the life of the species is, is stored and we can have access to it. That's kind why of like Edgar Casey, record, yeah, right? Akash, yeah. That's exactly what it is. That's why Edgar Casey, the sleeping prophet, could, could tell you about someone that wasn't there and what ailment they had and, and how to heal them. Because he was tapping into that to that database. It, it seems that way. Yeah. Right. It seems we're all connected and we're all evolving together. And right. we're, um, you know, that's, I, I guess if I had a, a spiritual belief, um, it would be that, is that we're all kind of, we're here to be creative. And in the process of creation, we're feeding information back into the grid. And that grid is our collective unconsciousness. We're here to explore and know. Right. Right. Um, so this is a perfect segue into uh, one of my favorite um, writers and humans would uh, it was Joseph Campbell and you talk about him a lot I'd like to read a quote from your book um, in the power of myth uh, you write Joseph Campbell said the athlete who is in championship form has a quiet place in himself and it's out of that place that action comes if he's all in the action field he's not performing properly there's a center out of which you act in dance that is true so that yes, was, that's what I refer to as the eye of the hurricane. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to talk about that because I think that's a core concept for you is, is yes. finding or creating the eye in your hurricane. And God knows there's a lot of hurricanes around, whether it's in sports or just the world yes. at large. So in the past, you might hear it referred to as the still small voice inside. The still small voice. It's very easily drowned out. So you got to be still and know you got to go inside and you gotta locate it, you gotta find it. So there's nowhere to be found. If you try to find the, you know, the uh, location, you know, what degrees north or south or any of that, you won't find it, but you can mm. experience it, you can f become aware of it. And you have to train yourself to be able to access it. And you, you hear athletes talk about uh, when you know when time slows down, they can't hear the crowd. Right. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a common, uh, you know, athletic meme. Right. Uh, and, and that's what you're talking about. Yes, I'm talking about that. And, and the brain and the mind, they work, they're, they're programmed for survival. So I was watching this program and it was talking about these firefighters were in the Northwest and the, they were fighting a fire and the wind shifted on them. So they had to run to safety and that the brain actually slowed down things so they could think about what they had to do so it's when we get pushed to the limits we have access to this innate intelligence right and so they they figured out how to go someplace dig in and then they they were able to let the fire go 
beyond them. But that happens all the time. If you injure yourself, then the neuro, you know, the brain spruces a little endorphin, so you don't hear feel it until whatever, and you're mm. able to do things because it's it's just programmed for survival. It's programmed for the like some people call it the life instinct. But we have to get out of the way and let it do its thing, and that's the challenge because there's an intelligence inside of us that knows when to breathe, when to digest food, when to do all this stuff. And, and consciously, by our thinking, by our stress level, we actually impede that natural process. So as we start to figure out how to relate to ourselves in a way where we can allow our innate abilities, and usually those innate abilities don't express themselves until we get into a crisis or when we get where we have to go beyond our current limits. And so that's when we have access, when we when we push ourselves, and that's why I talk mm -hmm. about getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, and then that's how we get into flow states because we are expanding our capacity, but we're also being courageous to go out of our comfort zone and to go in, the kind of play in between comfort and discomfort. And you talk about flow state as being this, uh, this uh, I guess, state where uh, you know high skill meets high challenge and that's right. you, you literally rise to the occasion and almost your body takes over without your, that's right. your mind doing that's absolutely much at all. right because there's a way of relating to your your subconscious or unconscious or the part that we're not aware of and it, it really has to do with how we communicate with it and then emotions are a really good way or mm. feelings are a really good way to relate to it but as you can see in, in our current culture, some people can't accept the truth. And so if you don't accept the truth, it doesn't exist. So there has to be a way of being vulnerable enough or have an open mind, open heart, where you can let in the possibility of truth and then being able to uh, just intend and then allow. This is a beginner's mind in Zen. Yes, yes, so you form the intention, but you have to accept the fact, yeah, okay, I can do this, or mm -hmm. it's possible and I'm gonna do all the training and everything, and then I'm gonna just let it happen by just be still and knowing or just being mindful and letting things speak to me so that I'm responding to how things are now, which is probably different than they've ever been. I'm different, it's different, so this constant change. And so why not choose who you're gonna be in that change rather than allowing change to happen to you and then be reacting to change rather than being proactive in, in sensing the change or just like if you're in a current, right. you can fight against the current or you can flow in the current, know where the current is going and then you can move out of it. But you let the current take you, you just, you have to accept things as they are and then in that acceptance, in that space, you get to choose your values, you get to choose mm -hmm. what you want to do or how you want to respond. Right to it based on your goals, based on who you say you want to be as a person. And so to me, it always comes down to who you be, what kind of person you want to be, and we get to choose that. We get, we get to decide. That's if we're awake. If we're asleep or half asleep, then we're just robots. We're just things that are carrying us along. We become passive because we don't know that we are responsible. We don't know that we have this ability to choose our response instead of not having any space between stimulus and response. Um, I love the metaphor of a, of a ship and a sail because um, 
you know, ultimately we are subject to the forces of nature. That's right. And, um, you know, that's inevitable, but how we choose to, I guess, direct our sales, which is a skill, right? That's we can, right. we can build this thing and then we can direct, uh, the forces of nature through, you know, the wind and water and we can choose our path. That's right. And to me, that's what the skill of mindfulness does. It allows right. you to choose, you know, ride, ride the wave, but consciously not be carried away by it. Yeah. So mindfulness makes you aware of the path, the choice, but then it, it's up to right effort right. and and wisdom to actually um, do it. Because you mentioned that you've worked with inner city populations, you've worked with people who, are, uh, you know, had a criminal past or present, and and they had a very high state of flow and mindfulness. Right? You have to be street smart. You have to yeah, go. Yeah. Well, I would, I would I don't know if they got in the flow because I have not had that in the <laughs> negative mindset. But they definitely are, are concentrated. Uh. They're definitely mindful, and they're definitely. Uh, persistent in their in their effort. So, but the difference is whether it's 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 based on alleviating suffering or causing more suffering. It's it's based on becoming more free or becoming more attached, more um, addicted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so you can be addicted to excitement or whatever. But to me, it's the intention. And it's the mindset, the attitude that you have. You have an attitude of love versus attitude of fear. We'll just use those two. The attitude mm. of fear is going to lead to more suffering. The attitude of love is going to lead to more freedom, even if it's unpleasantness or suffering that leads to freedom versus suffering that leads to more suffering. That's how I would put it. Um, another uh, book you bring up quite often, it's one of my favorites, is The Inner Game of Tennis. Right. And... Um, kind of as it relates to flow state, um, maybe you can talk about what, you know, self one versus self two is and, and how we can, uh, you know, use this concept to guide us into a flow ready state and what you do. Yes. So let's just talk about, so self one, let's say you're right handed like myself. Mm-hmm. I speak about myself. So self one is the, is the left brain. It's linear. It's the words of the song. And it is in control all of the time. It's, it takes up space so that the, the right brain itself too doesn't get a word in edgewise. Mm-hmm. But when we can be still and know, and when we can focus on one thing, we can slow that down and then the, the right brain gets to be involved and that's where the melody, where the whole picture, that's where the intuition, that's where we have to get out of the way and just let what we train ourselves to do, to do it. And so you just allow it to happen. So when I talk about allowing things to happen, I'm really saying, instead of having the dominant side dominate and then be in this, you know, like this linear thing, progression, one plus one equals two. If you go and let this self two go in, then that's two plus two equals six. It's not linear, it's Mm non-linear. It's more holographic, but it's seeing a big picture and there's a knowing, there's an intuition, there's a wisdom on in that side. So you wanna use the whole brain, but you wanna know the one brain directs you and says, okay, this is what we want to do. And then you got to let the self to actually do it. And right. that's what he talks about in the book. And, and why I love this model is because self too is that, you know, that inner nature, that playfulness, that, that, that's right. that, that childlike. childlike, that's right. You know, and when as kids, we, we do things we shouldn't be capable of doing and we do them effortlessly. But right. at some point this, this voice and that voice could be your voice or somebody else's voice telling you, don't do that. Can't do that. And we, you know, I think that's when the ego gets in or the, the persona. 
yeah. who we think we are or how we should be rather than being who as we are. And, and, and I mean, the author of that book, Tim uh, Galloway, I believe, his claim to fame was being able to teach um, tennis, like novice tennis players, how to have like a decent right. backcourt game in, right. in very short order. That's right. Just by using that concept. Yes. Yeah, so so the, the middle brain has to do with learning. And obviously, if, if you can free up that, that, you know, the part of the middle brain, the, the self too, mm-hmm. or the intuitive part that so because we learn in patterns and we learn better when we're unconsciously learning Mm -hmm. versus when we're consciously learning there's a there's a there's a wisdom there they've done studies and tests you know just studies with people playing jet black jack and knowing which deck to pick from is when we don't think about it we and we let the the self to pick it it's much more accurate and it it takes in more information you let, let your intuition speak to you yeah right um, so I can hear the people gathering outside. I know you got to go in a couple minutes, but before you do, um, and you know, speaking of kids and, and how they're, you know, maybe very natural at things and very naturally mindful, uh, I want to talk to you about another initiative you're involved with, which is Ivy Child. Right. Uh, what is Ivy Child? Ivy Child is an international organization that that brings mindfulness and contemplative practices like yoga uh, and mindfulness and. Just uh, even, I would say, some social and emotional learning type mm-hmm. um, competencies to educational and community systems. Mostly, we've been dealing with um, the underprivileged kids in inner cities, and mm-hmm. hopefully, I want to expand that to rural areas and to all, <clears throat> not just all communities in the United States, but also worldwide. And just want to make or help encourage people to, to teach these life skills at an at a early age so that they're able to access their own resources and they're able to make more humanistic choices, more wise choices, and not be so reactive or, re, uh, or dependent on addictions or, or mechanical ways of being. Because mm-hmm. I think we need their individuality, we need their um, creativity. So, math, science, history, mindfulness—you need to learn all those things. Yeah, Growing mindfulness up. enhances everything. It does, and so, we, we we don't we don't learn how to learn. We don't learn how to be. We don't learn how to relate. That's it. Learning how to learn, and not just learning in the classroom, but learning twenty-four-seven, or learning sixteen hours we're awake, just paying attention, seeing what's so, and continuing to evolve and grow and become more. Um, mindful, the more more knowing of how mm. things work, how we work. Because the game is everywhere all the time, right? Yeah, you can't separate the person from the athlete. So right. if you got to be a mindful person to be a mindful athlete or a mindful dad or a mindful CEO or mindful musician. Right. Yeah. So you, we're no different than MJ and Kobe. No, we had the same capacity. Same capacity. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's a good uh, it's a good way to to end it yep. on top. Yes, yeah, so I think I have to go anyway. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I, I took right. a lot of your time today, okay. but I really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you very right. much, George. Yep.